The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It feels like it's been a long time since we've been together. Is it just me or is it anyone else? I guess just because we haven't been in this room. Uh, We were there at the picnic last week, uh, so I just feel like it's been a while since we've seen each other. Speaking of the picnic, you know, it's always good to do a review of things that you try to put on. Just make sure, you know, they went well, they went as you planned. If you had fun at the picnic last week, raise your hand. Okay, very good. If you enjoyed the games last week, raise your hand. Okay, if you thought the jokes you heard at the beginning of last week's message were the funniest you've ever heard, raise your hand. Very good, all right, that's what we were looking for. Very good. We're in Genesis chapter 2. For those of you who may be new or joining us, we are in the middle of working through Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as a study of biblical foundations. We have just completed two weeks ago our study of the very first story in Genesis, which is, of course, the creation story, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Today we're getting ready to start into our newest story. And so for the very first time, let's read Genesis 2, 4 to 25. Verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And there was the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to begin a new story this morning. We have learned so much so far in Genesis, just about you, about who you are, how you are working in this world, what your plans ultimately are for us. We were so encouraged by these things here in the creation story that now, Lord, as we approach this new portion of the text, we are equally excited. And so this morning, Father, we come and we just ask your blessing on not just this Sunday, but the next several Sundays that are coming as we take the next several weeks to work through this portion of Moses' story as we seek to understand what your plan is for us, how you view us, what how we relate to you, Lord. This passage here has focused our attention now on what you did specifically with Adam and Eve in the garden, what you are specifically doing with us even today. And so, Lord, help us not to get caught up in just the details of the story. Help us to look beyond this to understand the big picture truths that transcend all of Genesis, all the scriptures, even to today, so that we can see you and understand you through the story. And then ultimately, Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand how Christ relates to this, how we understand Christ better as a result, and ultimately how we can become more like him through this study. And so, Father, this morning as we begin, we just give you all these things, this whole story, this whole sermon series now that's coming from Genesis 2, and ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're at the beginning of a new section, I thought it would be helpful to take today and just cover a few introductory items that I thought would be helpful for us to recognize before we start working through this new story. Now, I call it a new story But in fact, the story here in Genesis 2 really isn't new at all. I call Genesis 2 a betwinkle. Do you know what a betwinkle is? A prequel is a story that comes before another story. A sequel is a story that comes after another story. So a betwinkle is a story that comes in the middle of another story. Chapter 2 here is a betwinkle because it is an expanded account of what we read about back in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 29. You can almost pick up chapter 2 here, the rest of chapter 2, and drop it there so that you can understand what's happening in that portion of day 6. Those verses there in Genesis 1 describe to us in, in some detail what God did in making us, us as humans. But it didn't give a full account, and so Moses here is coming back to that event in order to explain it more fully. And so as we work through this account in the weeks ahead, you need to remember that we're simply really going back into chapter 1 to fill in some of the details that weren't included there. And so let's begin today by just looking at some features of this new section that we're in to make sure that we can get our minds around what's going on so that in the weeks ahead, as we're coming back and going in-depth into the story, we've laid a good foundation that we can build on for all those things. The very first thing I want to draw your attention to is a seemingly unimportant phrase at the beginning of chapter 2 here, verse 4, the beginning of the story. Notice how the story begins. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the phrase that I want to draw your attention to, the one I'm saying is so important, is this, these are the generations of. Now, on the surface, 
There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of interest or importance there, but in reality, this is one of the most important statements in the entire book of Genesis. It is one of the most important structural statements that Moses uses anywhere in his writing. And you say, are you exaggerating for effect to say it's this incredibly important? It doesn't look like it's anything special. No, I'm really not exaggerating. It is that important for us. This phrase here represents the very first occurrence of the primary structural piece of the entire book of Genesis. It's a Hebrew word that you need to know. It's called toledot. Okay? If you keep notes, write that down. I try to break it up so you would know how to pronounce it correctly. Toledot. The very first time you've seen this word here. It's a hard word to translate accurately in English. You can tell that here in chapter 2, verse 4, the ESV translators chose to use the word generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. But think about that for a minute. How do the heavens and earth have generations? Generations normally has to do with offspring, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Heaven and earth can't have those, and yet... That's probably about the best word that they could have chosen for this. It has to do with what comes from something else. It has to do with what is going to become of something else. The root of the word means to give birth. So you could say these are the beginnings, and in that sense, it's the story, but you have to have a long-term view of it. The word has to do with what is going to happen here with the subject in view. And in this particular case, chapter 2, verse 4, Moses is concerned with what happens to the heaven heavens and the earth that God made. What's going to become of them? Now, the reason that I say that this is one of the most important, if not the most important structural word in all of Genesis is because it's going to show up a number of times from this point forward at the beginning of each unique story that Moses wants to tell. Um, Anyone want to take a guess as how many times this word shows up in Genesis? Someone just say it. 27? No, no. 58, way no, no. Shows up 10. That shouldn't surprise you, right? Because when we were in Genesis 1, looking at the creation story, how many times did God speak? Let's make sure that 10's up there. He spoke 10 times. 10 times God spoke in Genesis 1, creating the world, bringing the world as we know it into existence. And now Moses, as he is explaining to the people of Israel who they are and how they came to be, he speaks 10 times. He gives them 10 stories so they can understand who they are and where they came from. You think about this, though. How come he didn't begin the whole book with one of these? There wasn't one in Genesis 1-1, was there? Because otherwise that would have been the first occurrence. Well, remember I said to you months ago now that the book of Genesis is the foundational book of the Scriptures. Everything else that you're going to read in the Scriptures is coming from the book of Genesis. And as you think about Genesis, Genesis 1, the creation story, is kind of like the cornerstone of that foundation. Well, here's your grammatical proof for that. Moses sets that one story, the one we just finished studying, apart and says, here's the introduction. Here's the prologue. Here is the foundation of the foundation. And now on this foundation, the creation story, I want to tell you ten stories that are going to come from this so that you can understand who you are, Israel, so that you can know where you've come from, so that you can know who this God is that has called you out of Egypt and has made you his own. That's how you need to understand the structure of the whole book of Genesis. If you understand that, every time you come to one of these phrases, you're going to realize, wait a minute, 
Moses is ready to tell me a new story. He's ready to move on and build something new so that I can understand who God is and what he's doing with Israel. And so having laid that foundation there in Genesis 1, you come to this very first Toledot here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And this is the account of the generations of the heaven and the earth. Excuse me, the earth. This story is going to run from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 4, verse 26. Okay, this is a big story. And you'll notice this morning that, and you can thank me for this after church, that I did not read to you the entire story, did I? Okay, can you imagine how long it would take us every Sunday if I read that entire section? That would be be quite a while. The reason I chose not to read the whole story to you is because this first story is broken up into three scenes, three acts. If you think of it as a play, which is okay to do because we're dealing with with a narrative account, a story. It has three acts to it. We're looking at the first act, the first scene right now, which is Genesis 2-4 to verse 25, and it deals with how God interacts with man prior to the fall. Explain how man was made. Give us more details about what this was like, Moses. And so he does that. He explains how God made us. He explains what was happening in the middle of it. And we'll talk more about this in great detail in the future. The second scene is found in chapter 3. And it deals with the events of the fall. So what happened? What went wrong? Why didn't man stay in that state? Well, Genesis 3 is the second scene explaining how sin and death and the curse entered the world. The third scene is found in chapter 4, and it deals with what happens after the fall, both with the sin of Cain and of his descendants, as well as the birth of Seth and those who call upon the name of the Lord. So that by the end of this first story... You've got a pretty good idea of what the deal is in, in the world at this point. Okay? There are people who are doing their own thing. There are people who are calling on the name of the Lord. This is just what is happening at this point. So as we work through that, this is only really one story. It's the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. Just keep that in mind. Second one is the account of the generations of Adam's line. This runs from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. And chapter 5 is nothing but a genealogy. Aren't you excited to get into a genealogy? Yes, excellent, very good. Chapter 5 is nothing but a genealogy. I actually think it is kind of interesting. But beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, you run into a problem. You realize that Adam's line isn't uh, quite doing what it's supposed to do. That the world is filled with wickedness. That every intention of man's heart is just evil continuously. And so when you end the second story, you realize that the godly line of Seth, it, it didn't do so well. The sin is everywhere, it's rampant, and so it leads us to our third Toledot, which is the account of Noah's line, of Noah's story. This runs from 6.9 to 9.29. This includes everything that happened in the flood, as well as everything that happens up until the death of Noah. The fourth one, and we're moving through these pretty quickly, as you can see, if you were worried about that. The fourth one is the account of the line of Noah's sons. This runs from 10.1 to 11, verse 9. Again, all of chapter 10 is going to be a genealogy, just helping you understand the progression of people. But beginning in chapter 11, 1, we run into another problem. Things haven't really gotten better. The, the people who are left on the earth are coming together. We know this story as the Tower of what? 
Babel, as they're coming together wanting to build this tower to the sky. And so God, very similar to what he does in the flood, and we'll talk about how this is similar, I won't develop it today, comes in and brings judgment on the earth, divides their languages, sends them out in different ways. That's what's happening there. The fifth Toledot is the account of Shem's line. And that's Shem, not Shemp, for those of you who are Three Stooges fans. This runs from 1110 to 1126, very short. Why would Moses focus on this one son of Noah? I mean, he already dealt with Noah's sons. Why do it again for just one of his sons? Well, that's because Shem is the ancestor of Abram, Abraham, ancestor of Israel. In fact, here's one of your Jeopardy questions. If you ever get on and win money because of this, I get a cut. Where does the word Semitic come from? It comes from Shem's name. It's a Shemitic person, okay? It's, you lose the H in modern usage, but a Semite or a Semitic person is a descendant of Shem, okay? And so Moses takes a moment to explain Shem's line. Now, you're going to notice right here that that's the end of chapter 11, and that's as far as I've promised to go. However, that's only halfway through Noah, or Moses' stories. Sixth Toledot is the account of Terah's line, Terah is the father of Abram or Abraham. That's going to take you from 1127 to 2511. The seventh one is the account of Ishmael's line. So he starts with the son who is not the son of promise. That takes you from 2512 to 18. The eighth is the account of Isaac's line, the promised son. That runs from 2519 to 3529. Ninth is the account of Esau's line. Again, not the promised one, 36.1 to 37.1. And then the book ends with the account of Jacob's line. That runs from 37.2 to 50.26. And so by the time you get through with these 10 stories, Moses is able to explain to the Israelites everything that they need to know in order to understand who they are, where they've come from, and who this God is that has called them out of Egypt to make them his own people. And because this is how Moses has chosen to structure his writing, his story, well then we need to be aware of this so that as we're working through the text, not only in just a few weeks ahead as we're dealing with this first scene of the first story, but all the way till we get to the end of chapter 11, we need to be recognizing this so that we can read his story correctly and understand what he's written. Does that make sense? Okay, just got the structure of what's happening here. Okay. Now for our purposes right now though, We're only concerned with the very first Toledot, the very first story, which is the story or the account of the generations of the heavens and the earth from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 4, verse 26. And more specifically, we're only concerned with the very first scene of that story, which is found here in chapter 2. And as we begin to approach this new story in the next few weeks, I wanted us to take a few moments today and ask the question, What are we looking to find? What is it that we need to understand as we work through the text here? What is it we need to learn about God? And what is it we need to know about how God views us here in these verses? Well, let me point out a number of features that stand out to me here in Genesis 2 that we're going to develop in much more detail as we go work through it in the next few weeks. First, we're going to learn more information about the creation of man. Okay? This is where we're going to start. Understanding exactly what God did when he made us. I mean, just look at verse 7 very quickly here. This is where you learn that man was made from the dust of the ground. 
You didn't learn that back in chapter 1. You you learn it here in Genesis chapter 2. This is where you find this amazing statement that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And that because of this, man becomes a living creature. That's an amazing comment when we stop and think about it. We're going to use this time here next Sunday particularly to go back into Genesis chapter 1 and ask the question, what does it mean for man to be made in God's image, in God's likeness? See, these are the kinds of questions we need to understand so that we can have a full grasp around who is man to God? What is he doing with us and why? We want to understand these kinds of things to know things about the creation of man. Second... We're going to learn some things about the care of man. The care of man. And I find the information in verses 5 to 14, Moses' description of the land of Eden, fascinating. And we don't have time to work through it today. I mean, again, this is what we're going to take some time to work through together. But if you look at verse 8, just as an example of this, Notice that after making man from the dust of the ground, he takes man and he places him in a place called Eden, which he only simply uh, defines for us as being a place in the east somewhere. He takes man, places him in Eden, and it's in Eden now that God makes a garden for man to live in. And, and when you think of the Garden of Eden, I don't know what word com- or what picture comes to your mind for garden. I hope you don't think of a rectangular plot of land with like tomatoes and cucumbers and, and beans and stuff. You need to think more in terms of like the Norfolk Botanical Gardens, that kind of a, of a garden, okay? Probably way better than that, I would assume. But God places man in this incredibly beautiful place that has been personally made by God to meet every one of man's needs. And not only is this a beautiful place, but it's a divine place. In fact, some people, when they read this account, they see overtones of the temple that's going to come later on in the Old Testament. This is a place where God is going to dwell with man. This is a place where God is going to speak to man, to meet with him, to walk with him. This is not a normal place. There's nothing else like this in creation. There's nothing else like this in the scriptures. In fact, the only other time that you're going to come to anything that looks anything remotely close to this is, guess where? Revelation 21 and 22. When you get to Revelation 21 and 22 as John is describing the new heavens and the new earth. Guess what's in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, there's a river, just like in Eden. There's gold and precious stones, just like in Eden. There's a tree of life. The only other place the tree of life shows up, just like in Eden. Very, very similar descriptions. Outside of those two places, there's nothing like this. For now, you just need to understand that we're going to have to take some time to recognize what's the significance of this. Why does God want us to know about this place that he's made as he tries to care for man, this man that he's made? Third, we're going to learn about the charge to man. Using the word charge here for like command or requirements. Even though this place is a paradise in the truest sense of the word, we use that word very cheaply. Okay, this place really is that. It is a paradise. Even though it's a beautiful, wonderful, divine place, there are requirements. There are things that have to be done by Adam and by Eve as well. In verses 15 to 17, you notice 
that God lays out both positive and negative commands for Adam. Positively, he's to work and keep the garden. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock a couple of you right here with this comment. Work is not a part of the curse. Okay? You got it? I know you feel that way on Monday mornings. But it's not a part of the curse. From the very, very beginning, Adam had a responsibility to tend this garden that God has made. He's got to work it and keep it and all the things that that would entail. Work is not a punishment for sin. It's difficulty in work that was part of the curse. It was now that the earth would no longer produce its fullness. It was now that by sweat and toil we would eat our bread, okay? It's difficulty in work that was part of the curse. But work itself is actually listed here as a, as a positive requirement in the garden. Negatively, though, you see that Adam is given one no, one thing he can't do. And that is to eat of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, he's specifically warned by God here that in the day he does it, he's going to what? He's going to die. I mean, God couldn't be any more clear about it. Don't do it. If you do it, you're going to die. Super clear. No ambiguities. No questions. No problems. This is the only thing he can't do. Now, we're going to deal with this issue of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a little bit in chapter 2, but I'm going to reserve most of my comments about it to chapter 3 when we get to the fall. However, just simply recognize here that it's the presence of this tree in the garden that ultimately leads the world into sin. The tree is not the problem. Okay, you got that? The tree doesn't cause man to sin. Man chooses to sin. However, we're going to have to stop and think about this because this was his only no. The only thing he couldn't do. These verses here represent the charge that God gave to man and they're not complicated. And then fourth, we're going to learn about the companion of man. We're going to spend some time talking about what, why does man need a companion? I I love verse 18. It should stand out to you like a sore thumb in the text. And the new members who were at new members class yesterday just heard this. So you guys can tune me out for a minute. But if you remember that this section of the story is a betweenquel, okay? It, it's, it's fitting there in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 29. Then all of a sudden, verse 18 looks really weird. Because prior to this, in the creation story, days 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, God makes things and he declares them to be what? Good. Okay? He makes light, the light's good. He makes dry land, the dry land's good. He makes vegetation appear, it's good. He makes sea and air animals, and they're good. He makes the land animals, and they're good. And now he makes man, and he says, it's not good. It's not good that the man is alone. And the word good here means fitting or appropriate. It has the idea that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Okay, It's what God wanted it to be. And so God here has made a situation that is not what he wanted. Now, think about that for a moment. Why would God make something that isn't good? Why would he make something that isn't what he wanted? Did he forget? No, he didn't forget. Did he make a mistake? He's like, oh, I should have, I should have made two of them. No, he, he didn't make a mistake with it. Clearly, he did it on purpose. But what's even more interesting here is notice that after God declares that it isn't good for man to be alone, the next thing he does isn't to make woman. What does he do? Oh, this isn't good. Why don't you go name some animals? Okay, that's weird. I'm sorry. I love God. That's, that's just a weird thing. And yet, 
here in the midst of that, during that process, Adam comes to realize that it's not good also. That there's no one who's there to be a helper for him. And once Adam realizes his need, then God cut, excuse me, comes and makes a woman for him. Here in these verses, we're going to learn about God's plan for men and women, about God's plan for marriage. And just, you know, point this out because, again, this is super interesting to me, and I won't develop it at all. But in verse 24, notice that that verse really isn't a part of the Genesis 2 story. It's not. It's Moses, as the author, stepping in like, ooh, let me just make a comment real quick here. Just a quick application for you, my readers, for you, my listeners. This story here, this is why you get married. This is, this is explaining what marriage is all about. Okay? Verse 24 is an application. It's a commentary on what he just described there in the account. And then once he says what he has to say, he goes back into his story. These are some of the truths that we're going to be looking at as we work through this story in the weeks and weeks here to come. Notice how I said that, weeks and weeks here to come. And in the end, the big picture truth that I want you guys to understand, that I want to discover here in this first scene of this very first Toledot about how God interacts with man, about how God views man, is this. I want you to understand that God has prepared human beings, I have to read it, both male and female, with the spiritual capacity moral responsibility, and communal assistance to serve him and to keep his commands so that they might enjoy abundant life in his creation. Remember what Genesis 1 was about, about God taking that which was lifeless and bringing it to abundant life. Okay, he's done that. That story, that story is done. Now we're coming back into that, understanding how God has made a man and a woman with these three attributes, spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance to serve him, to keep his commands so that they can enjoy that abundant life here in his creation. This definition, this uh, a big picture idea, is slightly adapted from David, Al- uh, excuse me, Alan Ross's book, Creation and Blessing, and I think it's excellent because as we stop and we try to understand who we are as image bearers of God, we recognize that yes, we are primarily spiritual beings first and foremost, physical second. This is this is who we are. This is the role we play in God's world by His design. We possess moral responsibility. God holds us accountable for our choices. And by God's design, we can't do things alone. It wasn't good that Adam was by himself. He needed a helper. He needed a counterpart to live with, to live his life with here on this earth, so that in the end, they could enjoy abundant life in God's creation. You know what? The Israelite, who was hearing this story for the very first time, They can totally connect with each one of those points in their own experience. Okay, so here they are. They're getting the law from Moses. They're out experiencing life with Yahweh in the wilderness. And for the very first time, they're beginning to understand the truth that they were made for God, not God for them. Because in all the pagan worlds around them, God's served man. God's are there for man's use. Here is Yahweh. He says, it's reversed. You are a spiritual being. You are here for me. I have made you. 
You have spiritual capacity because I made you this way. They're learning this for the very first time. Through the law and through their experiences with Yahweh in the wilderness, they're beginning to understand what God expected from them in terms of how they live their daily lives. There are things they can do and things they can't do. There are things they have to do and things that if they do, it it will bring consequences on them. The law is all about consequences through and through. If you keep the law, God brings blessing. If you don't, God brings curse. They're understanding this and how to live in this system for the very first time. And then through the law and through their experiences with Yahweh in the wilderness, they're beginning to understand that they are a people, first and foremost, a group, a nation, not just a collection of individuals. Everything in their world is centered around life in the community, life in the nation, life in the people, and they're learning to live and operate as that kind of a group, as that kind of a people under God's leadership. These concepts of Genesis 2 are front and center in the mind of an Israelite who's walking in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you know what? Big surprise. They're front and center for us as well, aren't they? See, the fact of the matter is, sin entered the world, you know, that's Genesis 3, and it ruined everything that God had made. It marred completely what was originally done there in the garden, there in the creation week. And while sin has affected each of these components, it affects me spiritually, it affects my choices, it affects how I interact with others, because of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection... Because of the gospel, Paul can say in a passage like first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5 that everyone who's in Christ is a new what? Creation. And, and that phrase there is not just a, a nifty little slogan he picked up. You really are a new creation. He says the old has passed away, the new has come. We are closer today to Adam and Eve than anyone prior to Jesus ever has been. Because in Jesus, in the gospel, in the salvation offered to us through the death of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to be remade into something that God would have us to be. Therefore, through Christ, guess what? I find that not only am I a spiritual being, but that in my sin against God, God had every right to punish me forever. And yet because of Jesus' death, I'm forgiven. And I have a right relationship with God now. A relationship that hasn't been experienced by anyone since Adam and Eve before Christ. Ever since Christ came and died, I have a completely open relationship with God again, just like they had in the garden. Through Christ, I find that all of my moral failures, every single one of them, has been paid for. Every wrong choice, every bad decision, every sin, all wiped clean. And now, now, I still can't please God, but in Christ I can. Through Christ now, I can live a life of obedience through the Spirit's work in me. I can now live a life that's fully pleasing to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Colossians, right? We looked at that there. This is how we do it. It's through Him. And then, through Jesus, I'm still not able to live my life on my own, right? So He gives me His Spirit to live with me. I need community assistance. 
He places me in his body, the church, so that I can live my life with other people who are also striving to have this kind of relationship with God so that together we can enjoy the abundant life that is ours in Jesus. Do you see how all of these components are exactly the same? It's exactly the same. Same as what Adam and Eve experienced. Same as what the Israelites were learning. It's the same thing for us. That Christ in his mercy has done these things for us, has overcome our sin so that we can enjoy that relationship. Is truly an act of God's grace. And so as we work through this story, in the next few weeks, you know, probably take us into January is what I'm expecting, this is what we're going to focus on. These are the truths that we're going to seek to understand, and by God's grace, we're going to learn that we as humans, though marred by sin, have now been set free in Christ to enjoy blessings that no one since Adam and Eve has been able to experience. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we are excited. The reality for every single one of us in this room is that we are sinners through and through. There is nothing that Adam and Eve did. There is nothing that any other person in all of human history has done that is worse than our own sin against you. We are rebels. And because of our sin, we were spiritually dead. Because of our sin, we were unable to do anything good or righteous or pleasing to you. Because of our sin, we were alienated from you. And in reality, we were alienated from everyone else around us. But you and your love and your mercy and your grace looked down on us. And you had pity. You loved us with a love that we did not deserve. And you sent your son to die on the cross to take every bit of that on himself. He came and died so that the curse that was rightfully ours would rest on his shoulders so that we could be made righteous in him. And now, now those of us who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, as we, Paul said in Colossians, are now holy and blameless and above reproach in Jesus And for the very, very first time since the day Adam and Eve chose to eat that fruit, people are now able to have this open, unmarred relationship with you once again. Not on our own, but only through Christ. And so, Lord, help us to understand these truths as we work through the text. Open our eyes and our hearts to see these things and to be changed by them. Lord, we do not simply want to learn this story. We want to learn you, to know you and your plans for this world, how you view us, all these things. And so God, help us to do that. Open our hearts through your spirit to receive it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.